Welcome back to the Spirits Guy podcast. I am Rich, your guide through the intoxicating world of spirits, books, movies, music, and anything else that's spiritual to me that I feel like connects us as humans. And this episode is about 24 hours I spent in Boston recently, where I get to experience a whole bunch of those things, including getting to eat the best meal I've ever had in my life at a restaurant called Hojoko, which is the restaurant attached to a hotel called The Verb. I talk all about that in this episode. And the spirits that I'm drinking in this episode are inspired by the whiskey menu at Hojoko, which was one of the better, if not the best, Japanese whiskey menu I have ever seen. So all of the whiskeys that I'm tasting on this episode are all Japanese whiskeys, and they're all whiskeys that appear on that whiskey menu. Uh, this is a tasty one for sure. Uh, so hopefully you guys enjoy it. Hopefully it inspires you to go out and have your own adventures. Uh, and if you do enjoy it, you know the drill. Go to the podcast page, click that follow button, give it a five-star rating, share it out on your social media. Follow along on Facebook and Instagram at The Spirits Guide where you guys can leave reviews and comments about the podcast. And for everything else, you can reach me at thespiritguide89 at gmail.com. All right. Hope you guys enjoy this one. I really did. And uh, yeah, cheers. We're ready to go. Uh, all right. Here we are. Uh, season three, episode six, talking about a trip I took recently to Boston in one of the most uh, incredible 24 hour spans I've had in a, a spiritual way. You know, this this trip kind of encompassed my passion for music and for art and for culture and for spirits and for food. And it was just all wrapped up in this whirlwind 24 hours that I spent in Boston last weekend. And I just wanted to talk about it and, and not to be not in a, in a sort of braggadocious way, but just to kind of show how this all came together, which is really part of what this podcast is about is about talking about things that people might not know about. Uh, and then, you know, if you're interested or if it's something that interests you, hopefully it sparks you to go down these, these sort of same rabbit holes. And, you know, I had probably the best meal I have ever had in my life. I'll, I'll talk about that more as the podcast goes on at Hojoko, which is the restaurant attached to the Verb Hotel in Boston. It, the food was just well, like I said, I'll I'll talk about it later. So that inspired all the spirits that I'm drinking on this episode, which are all going to be Japanese whiskeys. Uh, you know, when I got there, you know, one of the things that really kind of intrigued me about the restaurant was that they had an actual, you know, when you look up their menu online, they had, you know, like the, the menu and the drinks menu. And then they actually had a Japanese whiskey menu. I immediately posted it on social media when I get down there. Uh, that my friend Jason would love this. This would be his paradise, and it really, really would. So the the whiskeys that I'm tasting tonight are not necessarily inspired by the list. They are actually all whiskeys that are on the list. Uh, 
far more than I could track down or um, possibly drink in an hour and a half podcast. Uh, but I'm going to get a few in, and I am starting out with the Suntory Toki. No cork pop on this one because it's a screw cap. You know, for a while, really, the two biggest uh, distilleries in in Japan were Suntory and Nika. And Suntory is the first, and then Nika kind of was an offshoot of that. Suntory is a global kind of monster. You know, they own uh, Jim Beam. So, you know, they own probably the, the most well-known Japanese whiskey, and the number one selling American whiskey. Uh, and as we're about to talk about in the news, they own a bunch of other uh, distilleries across the world. Uh, needless to say, these guys know how to make whiskey. Uh, Yamazaki, all those whiskeys are really highly sought after as well. So I am drinking the Suntory Toki. And this is a whiskey that's not designed to be, you know, super crazy, uh, you know, break down all the flavor profiles. In Japan, they drink a lot of highballs, which is just whiskey and soda water or whiskey and ginger ale. And this is a whiskey that is designed for cocktails and highballs. And that is what I have made. I've got a little bit of polar seltzer water, some Suntory whiskey. Interesting, I'm just looking at the label, whiskey with no E. Rule of thumb, countries with the letter E in there. Their name tend to have an E in the spelling of whiskey. No E in Japan, so uh, no E in their spelling of whiskey. Japanese whiskeys, admittedly, are a little bit murky. Um, you know, there are new regulations that went into play last year. But prior to that, you know, Japanese whiskeys weren't necessarily all made in Japan. They were oftentimes a blend of scotch and Japanese spirits. Uh, they just had to sort of be bottled there to be called Japanese whiskey. What I love about Suntory and with Nika, when you go to their website and look up info on their whiskeys, they will tell you this whiskey is not compliant with the new standards of Japanese whiskey. So full transparency. Uh, but like we talk about with bourbon, it doesn't always matter where it comes from. If it's good, it's good. And this whiskey is good. It's affordable. It's right around the 40 something dollar range. And here's what it is. It's a blend of malt whiskeys and grain whiskeys uh, sourced from the Cheetah, Hakushu, and Yamazaki distilleries. And man, it makes a great highball. Just a nice, subtle whiskey flavor. Oh, refreshing. I don't know why more people don't drink highballs, uh, especially with, you know, a good blended scotch or a good, you know, Suntory Toki. Or the Nika Days is another one that's really designed uh, for cocktails and especially highballs. All right. A lot of news this week in the world of spirits before we get to my, my trip to Boston. I feel like I'm having this conversation every week about the future of wine. Uh, and I'm talking to my, my wine sales reps at the store and you know they're all, oh, it's coming back. And we talked to the owner of the wholesaling company and he says it's going to be okay. And I, you know, I just think that if you own a company that sells wine and you tell the people who are tasked to go out and sell wine, that wine is a dying product, uh, they're going to jump ship and get out of town as fast as possible. So I feel like that's them towing the company line. Uh, but here's a couple of things that really support what I have been saying, that wine is a dwindling category. Uh, one, in France, French winemakers are struggling. 
In France, they can put out 480 million gallons of wine per year. Um, you know, and that is just based on what they harvest, you know, how many, you know, acres of land is planted to grapes and, and what they can produce. It's 480 million. But every year they're selling 440 million. They have a surplus of 40 million gallons of wine for the last few years. Uh, that is causing French winemakers to struggle. Hopefully that, you know, kind of turns itself into some great value French wines, uh, which, you know, I don't drink a ton of wine anymore. Uh, but when I did, I love French wines. Hopefully we'll see some value uh, French wines out there on the market. Um <laughs> which again is a conversation I keep having of why nobody is trying to put out a product that's affordable uh, for people to drink. Uh, maybe we'll start to see some of that out of France. And I just read an article recently uh, with an interview from the owners of total wine. And they were talking about uh, wine is down. The future of wine is uncertain. The percentage of their sales of wine are down to the point where they are, reformatting their stores they're redesigning their stores to use less space for wine and more space for spirits now i don't always like total wine as a business model uh, i've talked about that before but you know when you run stores across the nation one of the biggest liquor retailers in the nation and they're starting to restructure their stores to have less wine on the shelf and more spirits that's a sign that even the players at the top who control and manipulate the market know that wine is a dwindling category. Sad, but true. And I've talked about my sort of feelings on why that is. Uh, so, but yeah, just sort of an interesting tidbit on the furthering of, you know, what is happening to wine. Uh, here's some interesting news. Scotch exports out of Scotland up 37%. Uh, that is, is heartwarming to me uh, that somewhere in the world, more and more people are drinking scotch. Uh, maybe there is a paradigm shift back to what I consider to be the greatest whiskey in the world. Uh, and part of that single malt scotch whiskeys are up 30%. That is a lot, guys. And I get like, you know, the price of things like Macallan have gone way up. And, you know, the price of single malt scotches have gone way up. But up 30%, that is a monster number. Uh so kudos to them. Uh, what else we got in the news? Buffalo Trace has doubled capacity. Finally, um, they are now able to produce 60,000 gallons of spirit a day. My question is, as this stuff comes online and they can produce more spirits in the future, are we going to start to see things like Buffalo Trace and Eagle Rare more readily available? Are we going to see Weller more readily available? Technically, they don't own Pappy, so it's not on them to make that more available. You know, they, they're they only going to make as much Pappy as they're contracted to make. But the brands that they do own, Blanton's, Weller, Stag, all the B-Tech stuff, are we going to see more of that in the future? Or are they going to continue to play this sort of status game and make more but hold it back? Uh, let's hope that this stuff becomes a little bit more accessible to everybody. And maybe that will kind of thin out the the douchery of of the hunter if it's more readily available uh here's another one you know do we need this uh pernod ricard owned omeka altos which is a brand of tequila that pernod ricard owns 
Uh, they're making another RTD. Actually, they refer to this one as ready to serve, not ready to drink. And I think the only difference is like ready to drinks are in four pack cans <laughs> and ready to serve come in 750 milliliter bottles. Uh, but does the world need another pre-made margarita uh, put out by another spirit global conglomerate giant funded by price increases dumped on us? The answer is no. Um, Mezcal. Mezcal is up second to scotch in terms of average dollar ring, you know, because the prices of Mezcal are so high. And admittedly, Mezcal is up because it's got room to grow. Uh, I just don't know how far it will grow. It's a quirky little category that I think people get curious about. They dive into and then uh, a few stick around. But, you know, just like smoky scotches, it's a very sort of niche part of the scotch drinking public. Uh, smoky Mezcals are a niche sort of part of the agave spirits. Uh, and then, you know, some news that is just sort of troubling to me, uh, you know, Jim Beam sales up 11% based on price increases. You know, their sales are up 11% because, you know, they're taxing us. Uh, Pernod Ricard up 12%. Uh, you know, and Jim Beam, again, that's Suntory. So it's Beam Suntory is the corporate name. Uh, they own a bunch of brand names, a bunch of scotches, a bunch of American whiskeys, a bunch of other spirits but they're up 12% solely based on price increases. Pernod Ricard up 12%. Uh, and they're announcing more price hikes to come in the next six months. So anything from Pernod Ricard, which is your Absolute, your Calore, your Jameson, all that is going to go up in price again. You know, Somehow these guys are, are selling less product and making more money uh, and it's it's on the backs of us. Um, Grupo Cuervo, which is the parent company of Jose Cuervo. They also own 1800, Bushmills, Pendleton Whiskey, Proper 12, Kraken, Grand Centenario. They're up 16%. I, 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 these are mind-boggling stats, you know, that they're up all this money, and yet they keep raising prices. Uh, I... You know, I, I wish, and not to get too like political, but much like a lot of us wish that there was a third political party here to have more choices, I wish there was another sort of liquor supplier that would provide an alternative because you almost want to throw your hands up and, and tell, you know, Constellation, Pernod, Diageo, Boston Beer Company, guys, go fuck yourself. You know, you keep raising the price to us. You're satisfying the elite and the people who have more money than they're ever going to have to worry about. And, and we're the ones footing the bill for all that. Again, Boston Beer Companies, depletions are down 5%. Depletions are down. That means the product leaving the warehouse is down 5%. Revenue is up 1.6%. You know, you don't have to be a, a business major or a math major to figure out how backwards uh, these things are. And yet, you know, we keep supporting them and they just keep, you know, price increase, price increase, price increase. I think we've hit the point now sort of post-COVID where 
it's no longer a supply chain issue. Uh, yes, there are some supply chain issues. Yes, there are some product availability issues. But for the most part, now they're just being opportunist and raising prices and they're killing us and they're killing some of the brands. Uh, and I am begging, you know, not that there's anybody out there with, you know, millions and millions of dollars listening to this podcast, but somebody somewhere, some company, some corporation, get smart, make a good quality product, be bourbons, brandies, tequilas, make something that people like us can afford and buy on a weekly basis. Um, and, and fast nickels, fast nickels. Right now, everybody's making slow dimes and they're making a lot of slow dimes. I, I don't know how they're doing it other than, you know, our our culture seems to be obsessed with status and things that are more expensive being perceived as better, but it's not the case. Uh, there's still good quality products that you can find uh, for short money, you know, all the Evan Williams products, Rebel 100. Uh, Redwood Empire is, is one of those companies that is just sort of in the mindset of, you know, we're going to make a good quality product, make it affordable, and sell a ton of it that way. Um, you know, these price increases, again, they're not on supply chain. Or or when they are on supply chain, it's because we were buying a lot during COVID, and now the back stock is running out, and they want to slow down the buying of it so that they don't run out of product. And people go like, well, that doesn't make sense. Why does that matter? Well, in other states where, you know, Walmarts and supermarkets have big giant liquor stores in them, and they're all run by corporate spec, we call it. You know, if you're out of a product, they don't have a hole on their shelf. So if you run out of, say, Woodbridge Cabernet in a Walmart in California, they're not going to leave that hole open until it comes back in stock. They're going to replace it immediately with another product. So these giant corporations want to slow down how much we're buying so that they can maintain inventory levels so they don't lose their spots in these big national chain box stores. Again, nothing to do with, you know, hard to get glass, cost of, you know, the product it takes to make it. It's more about making sure your shareholders show profit, making sure you don't lose your shelf space in these corporate accounts. Uh, and it's all being done on the backs of, of people like us who just want to drink good spirits with our friends and hang out and then, you know, enjoy, you know, watching a, a game or, or grilling out in the yard or whatever it is that we're doing kind of collectively, you know, again, we're the ones kind of paying for it. And it starts, it starts to get frustrating after a while. All right. Releases coming out, or at least releases that I've read about this week. I take one more sip. I feel like I'm kind of rambling at the heater going. I'm heating up my barrel again. It's a little dry in here. Mm. Oh, yeah. Highballs. So delicious. If you guys haven't tried a highball, seriously, if you've got some blended scotch at home or you've got some Suntory Toki at home, just throw it in a glass with some ice, a little bit of soda water, maybe a wedge of lemon. Such a great cocktail. Perfect in the summertime as well. Really, really refreshing. All right. Here's a release that I'm actually very, very excited about. I mentioned it earlier. Beam Suntour owns distilleries all over the world. And I had read last year about a whiskey they put out called AO. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's spelled A-O. Uh, 
And it is a blend of whiskeys from around the world, from distilleries that Jim Beam and Suntory own globally. So it is a blend from Scotland of whiskeys from Ardmore and Glengarry Osh, which we talked about here in the podcast, you know, a couple months back. Um, Cooley Distillery from Ireland. Uh, whiskey from Alberta Distillery in Canada. Whiskey from the Jim Beam Distillery. And then whiskeys from Yamazaki and Hakushu in Japan. So whiskey from literally all around the world, blended into one. And if there's one thing, you know, if you are familiar with like the Jim Beam Legion product, like blending is a, a big thing for Japanese whiskey. I'm really excited to see what has happened with this whiskey when you're blending, you know, scotches that have a little bit of peat to them, scotches that are a little malty, Irish whiskeys that are a little grainy. Alberta. I mean, the Alberta premium cask strength rye is an absolute beast. Then you get into some Jim Beam whiskeys and then some whiskeys out of Yamazaki and Hakushu. There's so much going on there. I am so excited to try this. And here's the best part. MSRP for all the chirpers. MSRP, MSRP. 55 bucks on the shelf. Finally, a limited release whiskey that is under a hundred bucks. And again, to taste all of those distilleries blended together for 55 bucks, my fingers are crossed that it will actually make its way to mass. And there's actually going to be enough of it out there. And that the game to get some bottles into the house, uh, is not going to be too, too bad. Um, but yeah, that is one that I am really, really excited for, uh, barrel craft spirits announcing batch 34 getting released. Uh, coming in at 57.31% uh, alcohol, 33,000 bottles. It's a blend of 6, 8, 10, and 15-year whiskeys that were distilled in Kentucky, Indiana, and Tennessee. Uh, MSRP, 90 bucks. Uh, and the great thing with Barrelcraft, like MSRP is usually about what you can find it for. Um, here's one that I'm actually really, really interested in as well. Uh, Woodford Masters Collection. We talked last week about how there's a new master distiller at Woodford. And Chris Morris has moved up to master distiller emeritus. I don't know what that means, um, but I'm pretty sure this is his project. And what I found interesting is it's called Historic Entry. And so the concept behind this one is they went into barrel at 100 proof. So 50% alcohol. That means 50% water once you proof it down. So 100 proof going into barrel, which, you know, a long, 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 long time ago. Uh, sorry, a little American pie there. <laughs> uh, a long time ago, that was kind of the standard for barrel entry was 100 proof. And then over time, it has crept up and crept up. And now sort of the max in kind of the industry standard is 125 to go into barrel. They can distill up to 160, but they have to proof it down to 125. So here's what I found interesting about it is according to, to Chris Morris, uh, his theory is and his research shows that water absorbs more flavor than alcohol. So by going into barrel proof uh, to barrel at a hundred proof, 50% of what's in that barrel 
is water and 50% of what's in that barrel is distillate. That, in theory, gives more liquid to absorb the flavors of the barrel. Really, really interesting. I'd never read anything like that before, but you know, anything I've read on Chris Morris, he is like a he's like a savant when it comes to distilling. He just some really, really cool info. And if you've never read anything on him, definitely go look some stuff on him. He's absolutely brilliant and doing things uh, kind of his own way. But that is an interesting, interesting theory for whiskey. And, you know, I don't always love Woodford. I have nothing against it. It's just never been kind of a go-to. But that is one that I would love to try if I can get my hands on it. The historic entry going into barrel at 100 proof. And then, you know, I got a couple here that does the world need. Uh, Stillhouse, which is this weird flavored whiskey that comes in like a metal gas can looking package. It's really odd. It's really quirky. They do like these sort of flavored whiskeys. Uh, I've tried them in the past. They're they're they are what they are. They're they taste exactly what they say they are. I just think the package is really really goofy. Their basic bourbon was not very great. Uh, but they have decided that the world needs a peanut butter s'mores flavored whiskey. Uh, if you just heard that and your ears perked up and you're like, whoa peanut butter s'mores whiskey i'll be in for some of that uh not at my store <laughs> i am not i am not bringing that in uh again the packaging i don't love uh the product is not great and i don't see oh, i don't i if that's your thing that's awesome finally there's a peanut butter s'mores whiskey for you in the world uh i just don't know who the market is for that uh so I will not be bringing that in, but it is a thing. Again, if that uh, kind of piques your interest, um, it'll be out there somewhere. And then lastly, Bakta Spirits. Now, Bakta is Raj Bakta, who started Whistle Pig, took his, uh, you know, Whistle Pig buyout money, went to France, bought a chateau, uh, found all these old stockpiles of old Armagnac going back to like the mid 1800s. Uh, that's kind of been his whole thing is he's selling these old Armagnacs uh, that they finished in Islay Scotch barrels, which is just, I don't know anybody who's figured out why he did that. I've tasted them. Uh, my thoughts on those Bakta Armagnacs is sometimes just because things are old and the story is interesting and they're rare doesn't make them good. And that's kind of how I feel about the Bakta Armagnacs. But I just read a release today that Bakta 2013 bourbon is coming out. Uh, I don't know what the 2013 means. I don't know if it was distilled in 2013. I don't know where he would distill it because as far as I know, he owns a chateau in France, so you can't make bourbon there. Uh, so he would have to be sourcing the bourbon from somewhere here in America. Uh, I don't think Whistlepig has been making bourbon that long there, if they're even making that much of it, you know, in Vermont. So I don't know where the bourbon is coming from, uh, but it's called 2013 bourbon uh, finished in Armagnac barrels, which makes sense because he's got access to Armagnac barrels and it's going to go for a cool hundred in $50 a bottle, very sleek, stylish bottle. Um, 
but again, I, another specialty release at 150 bucks. I, I don't know more about it. If I find out more about it or as more details become available, I will certainly let you guys in on that. Um, but again, it, it just sort of falls under that. Is this another product that the world needs? And after tasting the Bakta Armagnacs, which are really, really expensive, and I get why they're expensive. They're, you know, some of them are 150 years old, but they're just not great for that kind of money. And I, I, I sometimes wonder if that perception of like you paid that much for it, like that makes it better. In fact, I was having this conversation with uh, Matt, who's my beer manager, and some of you guys know pretty well from the store. And we were talking to like wondering if the concept is like you paid that much money for the bottle, like you have to convince your brain that it's good so you can somehow justify the fact that you spent that kind of money. Um, I don't know if that is it at all, um, but a $150 bottle of bourbon finished in Armagnac barrels, by the way, and Julio's Liquors has their barrel craft spirits. And that is finished in uh, Armagnac Barrels, their latest store pick release. That's finished in Armagnac Barrels. It's Barrelcraft Spirits. We know some idea of where the whiskey is coming from, how old it is. A solid track record of putting out really good products. And that's like 90 bucks on the shelf. So, uh, again, you know, like we talked about last week, you know, things you can chase and things you can catch. Uh, and sometimes paying more doesn't mean you're getting something better. You're just paying more. All right. I'm going to take a quick break, line up a couple of whiskeys for the next section, and just kind of tell you guys about this amazing 24 hours I spent in Boston. The, the coolest hotel I've ever been in, the greatest food I've ever had, uh, you know, my love for music and vinyl. Um, yeah, I'll talk about it in a minute. All right, guys, uh, go grab a drink. Like I said, unless you're driving, don't grab a drink. Uh, and uh, yeah, meet me back here in a minute. All right, we're back. Uh, season three, episode six, uh, talking about my trip to Boston. I think the podcast episode will probably just be called 24 Hours in Boston. It really was just a great 24 hours that I got to spend in Boston. And, you know, I wanted to tell the story because there's so many layers of how it all kind of came together. And, you know, the things that I experienced were all pretty awesome, but they wouldn't have been possible without some human connections that kind of led me into this kind of 24 hours. And again, like it's not not braggadocious like ooh i did this it's more sort of i guess inspirational like you know go find your own adventure it doesn't have to be exactly what i'm talking about um but you know find your adventure you know how good it is to just i don't know, get out of town get away for a night uh you know forget about the world and yeah it costs a lot of money sometimes and sometimes the money is is worth it um just to be away so again while I was there, I had probably the best meal I've ever had, at least the best one I can remember having. And it was in a restaurant called Hojoko, which we're going to get to in a minute. Um, and it was Japanese inspired food. And they had a Japanese whiskey menu. 
And that is the inspiration for all the spirits that I am drinking. And I am starting out with, this is not one that I sell at my store, by the way. So if you're looking for it, uh, but this is the Hatozaki small batch Japanese whiskey. And it's, yeah, it's listed as Japanese whiskey. And this is actually a sample that was given to me uh, by a friend a while ago. And I just hadn't tapped into it. And then, you know, I saw it on the list and I was kind of going through my stuff. And I was like, ooh, I have that. So it's exactly what was on the list. Here's what I can tell you about Hadazaki. It actually comes from the Kayo Distillery, uh, which is a whiskey that I'm going to be drinking next. It's a small batch, so it's a blend of whiskeys from Japan and Scotch whiskeys that they import. It's bottled at 92 proof. It's a blend of five to six year whiskeys, 100% malt whiskey. So all single malt, 100% malted barley. It's a blend of 20 barrels that were aged in a combination of bourbon barrels, sherry barrels, and Mizanura oak barrels. I'll be honest with you guys. I haven't had this yet. So, you know, this is going to be an on the spot, honest review. And in telling this story of these 24 hours, it's probably going to be some time hopping, uh, just kind of bouncing back and forth of how we ended up where we did. The whole purpose of going to Boston was to go see the show Hamilton, which those were tickets that I bought for my girlfriend, whose birthday was back in October last year. Uh, you know, so I bought the tickets way, way out. And, you know, even that, like, that's a show that... I probably wouldn't have had any interest in, you know, I had kind of heard all the hype when it was on Broadway and people going nuts about it and talking about it and how hard it was to get tickets. And, you know, sometimes when you hear all that hype, you just kind of brush it off. Like, Ugh, how can it possibly be as good as everybody's talking about? Uh, but my girlfriend was kind of obsessed with the show, had already seen it once uh, years ago. And, you know, during COVID when we couldn't go out anywhere, uh, she made me sit down and watch it. And so on Disney plus, I believe it was, there's the actual original uh, Broadway cast. Um, and it was fantastic. Um, you know, and it's not that I have a thing against musicals. I actually like going to the theater. Uh, I love plays and, and, and musicals, not all of them. Um, I wouldn't call myself an aficionado, uh, but you know, I've seen Les Mis and uh, Phantom of the Opera was you know, amazing to me. So I'm not opposed to it. Uh, but again, it was a birthday gift for her. And it's a, again, a show that I wouldn't have known about or had on my radar or had any interest in had she not made me watch it. So we had these plans, like we're going to go into Boston. And then we kind of started to talk about, you know, maybe we'll, we'll stay the night, you know, the night before and, you know, make a, an event out of it, a weekend out of it. And, at some point, talking to Matt, our beer manager at work, he knows I have a love for music and, and a passion for vinyl. And he says, hey, I stayed in this hotel with my girlfriend, who is now his wife. Congratulations, Matthew. Uh, and it's called The Verb. And it's in Boston. And in every room, there's a record player. And there's vinyl in the lobby that you can just go grab and take whatever you want and bring it up to your room. And I thought, this sounds like the coolest thing in the world to me. So we booked the room at The Verb. Actually, my girlfriend booked the room. And 
you know, it's in Boston, which I hate driving into Boston, but this actually wasn't very difficult to get to. It's right by Fenway to the point where when I looked out the hotel room window, I was staring at the outside wall behind right field in Fenway Park. Uh, I put the pictures up on Instagram. You can see outside the window. There's a whole bunch of campers there. The hotel is like staying in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So when you walk in the front door, you know, you go to check in. There's, you know, what looks like uh, Marshall Amps with a kegerator on top of it. And as it turns out, that kegerator pours hot and cold, cold brew coffee that you can have as much of you want any time of day that you want. Uh, behind you, there's a Marshall Amp that's secretly a cooler that just has bottles of water in it that you can go in and grab a bottle of water anytime. Let alone the fact that all over the walls, there are concert posters and, you know, shadow boxes with albums and press releases and concert tickets. And that's just walking in the door. So I was like, this place is heaven. Um, and, and the hotel is kind of constructed like a, a square with a courtyard in the middle. But the courtyard is a heated outdoor swimming pool. <laughs> so when you look out at the pool and here it is, you know, the middle of February, there's steam coming off the water like it it just kept getting better and better you know we walk up the ramp to go to our hotel room there's a giant uh sort of display behind glass of you know old microphones and old pictures of you know jimmy hendrix and paul simon frank sinatra you two uh just a whole history of music behind there and i put some of these pictures up on social media you know, like if you're a music nut uh, and if you have a passion for vinyl, this is the place, you know, like it's it's a boutique upscale hotel. Um, I get it. But man, does it cater to people who love music, you know, and that's just the way all the hallways are. There's all kinds of murals, paintings, um, you know, again, just concert posters and albums and shadow boxes. To the point where, like, I think I put the picture up on social media of, like, when you're walking down the hall and it says, like, rooms 101 to 125 with the arrow pointing one way. And, you know, rooms 126 to 150 with the arrow pointing the other way. And then down at the bottom, it says ice, ice baby for the ice machine and with the arrow pointing to the ice machine. You know, everything is just sort of music centered. Now, if you see the picture on my Instagram of that shot out the window. There's some campers underneath the window. You can actually stay in those campers. They are not cheap. Uh, they're very, very expensive. Um, but if you're looking for a unique kind of once in a lifetime, what they call like a rock star experience of like pretty much trying to simulate you sleeping on the tour bus of a, a rock bus. Everything so, so cool. The staff spot on just great friendly super nice people rooms clean um yeah the bathroom's a little weird but um but everything's kind of boutique -y and quirky and even in the room uh, you know there's concert posters in the room and the room has a record player like i said with a little marshall amp bluetooth speaker it's got an old typewriter in the room yeah just super just if you're a music nut, this was awesome. All right. Again, I, I know I ramble.
let's try this whiskey. Uh, again, five to six year whiskeys, uh, three different barrel finishes. Some of it's made in Japan. Some of it's made in Scotland. All right. And 92 proof, which I feel like is a little higher uh, than a lot of the Japanese whiskeys that I've seen. Oh, yeah, that's sherry right on the nose. So I guess this is going to be kind of a yay or nay tasting, too, because I can order this for the store. I just never have. But if it's good, it's coming in. Mm. Wow. That's fantastic. That's soft. It's light. Elegant. A lot of flavors going on there. Um, you know, clearly it's not big, bold, punch you in the face bourbon. It's a lot more subtle and elegant. Sort of honey notes and cereal notes. Little hints of vanilla. Pear. Apple. You know, orchard fruits. Yeah, it's... It's... The, the flavors are subtle, but... They're there. Yeah, that's a winner. I don't know the price on that, to be honest with you guys. Um, and Japanese whiskeys are sometimes a little bit on the pricier side, but wow. That is a winner. All right, so back to the hotel. And kind of, you know, there's just so much cool stuff and you know, there's other places to walk to from the hotel. It's good, good proximity to things. But the one thing that I, I wanted to point out, because you guys know I love when I look at something and I go like, oh, this makes sense. This is easy. And then I dive into it and realize there's so much more going on um, than what it initially appears to be. Uh, I just, I like depth in things. So when we wake up in the morning, there's sort of two panels of glass that are the windows that kind of face out onto the street. And one of the panels is tinted and it's tinted like a yellow and we're in the room and I'm trying to figure out like, why, why would they just tint one window that, you know, and we're trying to figure out like, is it the direction that the sun comes in? You know, why is it, it only tinted in this spot and, and it, it, trying to figure it out and you're guessing and you have no idea and you're not going to go ask the front desk because that seems like a stupid question at first. Oh, well, we went downstairs and we had breakfast in the restaurant, uh, which is only open to the hotel customers in the morning for their little continental breakfast. And we're sitting there and I look back across the courtyard at the outside of the building and realize that all the rooms are tinted in a way that forms like this kind of checkerboard pattern across the whole exterior of the hotel. So from inside, it looks like just one window is tinted. But from the outside, when you look at all of the windows, you realize it's a bigger artistic design. And then it kind of made sense why only one of the windows were tinted. Again, you know, perspective. You, you, you see it from this, and it's a very narrow view. And then when you step back and you look at the bigger picture, it was a totally different view. And that was just really, really cool to me. Just one of the many 
you know, sort of subtle little cool things about this hotel. So, you know, I'm trying to make reservations because, you know, we're going to get there and we're going to have dinner on Saturday night. And, you know, there was a lot of restaurants in the area to choose from. But I just decided to settle on the one that's actually attached to the hotel. And it's called Hojoko. So, <laughs> and honestly, when I stayed there, uh, I didn't know this at the time, but Hojoko is kind of an inside joke because the hotel apparently used to be an old Howard Johnson's slang name, Hojo's. Uh, and I had no idea until I got back and I was talking to somebody at work about it. And the guy was like, yeah, no, Hojoko. It's the joke of it used to be a Hojo's. So, you know, I made my reservation there and you, you can see the menu online. Really, really cool. And, you know, the food looks great. And uh, I had no idea what to expect. So when you go to dinner, you have to kind of walk out the front door of the hotel and walk around to the side of the building and go in the front door of the restaurant. Now, in the morning when we went there for breakfast, there's a wall inside the lobby that just slides to the side where you can go right through the wall in the lobby to go in for the continental breakfast because it's only open to the hotel customers. But at night, that doorway is closed and you have to actually go around to the front door of the hotel. By the way, I've poured another glass of whiskey here. I'm now drinking, well, not drinking yet, but I've just poured myself a glass of the Cayo. Uh, and again, much of Japanese whiskey is a little murky when you're trying to find info on it. Uh, I can't find a lot of info on Cayo. I've talked about Cayo in the past on older podcasts, uh, but this is 100% malt whiskey. It's a seven-year whiskey. I carry two of them at the store. I carry this one, which is called the Seven, uh, that is finished in Mizunara Oak. And then I carry one that has a black label that's actually completely aged in Mizunara Oak. So this is the Seven, I want to say right around that $50 price point. Uh, seven years in, I believe, X bourbon barrels. Uh, and then it's finished for six months in Mizunara Oak, on the ocean. So they're kind of doing the Jefferson's ocean thing with this one, putting it out on a boat for six months in Mizunara Oak. By the way, Mizunara Oak by Japanese law uh, needs to be 200 years old before you can harvest it. Um, it is also notoriously porous. Like it's really hard to work with, but the flavors that it imparts are unbelievable all right let's get a little sniffy sniff in there as gary vaynerchuk used to say for anybody who knows who gary vaynerchuk is one of the first guys i ever saw doing reviews online so yeah back to the the, the restaurant hojoko you know we walk in the front door it's saturday night Kind of Valentine's weekend. You know, it's the weekend before Valentine's Day. I expected it to be a little bit busier, but I, I guess you're, you know, in Boston, right outside of Fenway. Uh, you know, not a ton of residential, uh, but they were pretty steady. 
but immediately I just felt like I was in an episode of Parts Unknown. I felt like I was in an Anthony Bourdain TV show. The ceilings felt low. It was dark. A lot of woodwork that it kind of looked like it could have been a country bar. It could have looked like an old tiki bar, which I would later find out was an old tiki bar. Uh, and we were sat kind of in the back part of the restaurant. And, you know, we sat at what was kind of a counter. If you could picture like a sushi counter, uh, but it was a counter like we were looking straight ahead. We're looking into the kitchen. So it's a sushi style counter, uh, but without like the sushi case in front of you. But we're just watching the cooks work and being a restaurant guy, you know, my girlfriend's like, they're, like, they're not even speaking. I'm like, that. this is the magic of working in a, a kitchen when it runs like a well-oiled machine. Like the space behind there couldn't have been more than eight feet deep. So anytime you were passing back and forth as chefs, like you were bumping into each other, but no words spoken whatsoever. Uh, the chef kind of ran uh, what's called the expedition. Like, so he was right in the middle, putting the dishes out and ringing the bell for the service. And it was a thing of beauty for a restaurant person like myself to watch uh, just how efficient of a machine this was. And the menu is pretty much all, you know, they refer to it as shareables. But tapas, uh, for lack of a better way to put it. So small dishes, shareables. And I just turned into like a king holding court, just pointing at things on the menu and saying, bring me that, bring me that. Um, you know, we had, uh, I think she had the shiitake mushroom tempura roll um, going down the, the menu. Like we had... The shrimp toast. I'm I'm actually looking at the menu right now to make sure I get like the the spelling and and all the ingredients right. Um, the shrimp toast for anybody who's had you know gone to a Chinese restaurant in this area and had shrimp toast and wondered what those pieces of styrofoam are that they're serving you. That's not what we got here. Uh, Japanese milk bread that had chunks of shrimp in it. Uh, truffle aioli, lemon zest. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things on the menu that. I couldn't pronounce or didn't know what they were, uh, but they looked awesome. I, the shrimp toast had to be three quarters of an inch thick. Uh, they looked like brownies, like seafood brownies. They were unbelievable. Uh, what else did we have? Uh, we got an order of Brussels sprouts. We got an order of charred grilled cauliflower, uh, sweet potato, which was kind of sliced and served on this sesame curry aioli, which is one of the top three things I've ever tasted. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, it looks like a white potato. Maybe they, you know, kind of blurred the lines of what sweet potato are. And then we looked it up and now Japanese sweet potatoes are white, um, but long, skinny. Absolutely amazing. The, the one that blew me away, though, and I'm going to crucify the, the pronunciation of it. Butternut squash, Okonomo Miyaki. It was absolutely hands down the best bite of food I have ever put in my mouth. It was uh, Yamayo, Yamamiyo uh, batter, which is like a Japanese pancake batter. Uh, it had pumpkin spiced crunchies inside of it. Bonito. Uh, 
topped with local bacon and what something that they call Hojoko honky tonk. I don't know what it is, but I would have licked it off the floor. It was that good. Uh, we also got an order of house-made pickles uh, that was like uh, pickled ginger, pickled cucumbers. And then we were trying to figure out what this other one was. And it was like smoky. It was sweet. It was like like if you smoked a pear, um, but the brininess of a pickle. And we couldn't figure out what it was, but we couldn't stop eating them until finally I had to grab the server and say, like, what is that? And it turned out it was pickled daikon radish. Unbelievable. You know, and then I look and there's a, a whiskey menu for Japanese whiskey with some really, really cool stuff. And like I said, I put it up and immediately my friend Jason responded of like, yeah, no, it's on the bucket list. So, you know, the, the food was great. The service was great. You know, sitting at that counter, you know, just sort of the luck of the draw. I feel like if we were at a table, while I would have had more room to spread out and eat a little bit more comfortably, there was something about sitting at that counter that made the restaurant feel smaller to me. And it reminded me of watching an episode of Parts Unknown, you know, with Anthony Bourdain in some little you know, sushi shop that's like you go down the stairs into like the basement or some of these, you know, sort of Korean restaurants or Japanese restaurants that he would go to in these shows where they're just sort of tiny and intimate to the point where, you know, if I looked over to my right and saw Anthony Bourdain sitting there, I wouldn't have been surprised. It was that kind of feel uh, for me. Uh, you know, my girlfriend got a cocktail off the drinks list. That was absolutely fantastic. It had like mezcal and ricea and tequila in it. You know, really, really quirky. <laughs> you know, they're playing like Alice Cooper and rock music. It's fine Japanese dining. There's tacky Christmas lights on the ceiling. There was a disco ball in the middle of the room. Dragon Ball Z Japanese anime playing on the big screen <laughs> at the end of there. Just everything that shouldn't make sense and made Every bit of sense, uh, all in one. It was amazing. All right, let's let's taste this whiskey. Kayo the seven. Uh, what's the proof point on this as well? So 88 proof, 44% alcohol. Now, whereas the Hadazaki was really light, this is rich in viscous. Uh, lots of like honey notes to that. The Mizunura influence definitely comes through. Orchard fruit. Uh, but, you know, for all the sort of the proof point chirpers of like, it's not good because it's lower proof point and it doesn't have any body. Sometimes, yes, that is true. But not always. The Hadazaki was 92 proof, and it was lighter and thinner on the palate than this, which is 88 proof. This is big and rich, a little spicy, like chamomile tea. Yeah, that is an absolutely delicious uh, pour. Wow. And again, just one of the many great whiskeys that are on their Japanese whiskey menu. And by the way, they have all kinds of other spirits. You know, as we were leaving, I looked and they had like great rums and great cognacs, uh, great tequilas on their bar. So they are a full scale cocktail bar, 
with a great selection. Uh, I just kind of figured with Japanese food, I was going to go uh, Japanese whiskeys. Wow, that is is good. Uh, and then we had this honey cake for dessert uh, that was just topped with, I think it was a ginger whipped cream. It was maybe one of the best desserts uh, I've ever had. And again, being diabetic, I try to avoid that stuff, but you know, it was, <laughs> it was one of those scenarios where like you're full, your stomach hurts and you just keep eating because it's so good. You know, when we were done with dinner, we had to go for a walk. Like <laughs> I, I think I was still full when I got up in the morning, we had eaten so much food, but it was so, so good. Uh, and you know, relatively not that expensive, uh, for what we got. And again, this is one of those things where like, was the meal really worth 175 bucks? Absolutely. I mean, 40, you know, when you figure out of that 175 bucks, 55 of it was a cocktail and two pours of really good Japanese whiskey that I had never seen before. So now you talk of 120 for dinner in Boston. We probably had eight plates of food plus dessert. I, the, you know, the value of that to be, you know, with my girlfriend in that space, like the moment we had together sharing that food, that's well worth far more than 120 bucks. So I, again, and I, I want to point out also, like I, I'm getting nothing out of this. Like the verb isn't paying me. I, I have no endorsements from Hojoko. This is just my honest assessment of a great time that I had at a great place. And just doing this on the hope of like, if you're a Japanese whiskey fan, like my friend Jason, or you like great food, or you're looking for a place to go in Boston and get away and try something different, and you've never heard of this, now you have, um, and you can make your own decisions from there. But, you know, I, I get nothing financially out of this. Um, I mean, the general manager of Hojoko did uh, react to my post on Instagram, which was kind of cool, but I don't know who it is or, or anything like that. And, you know, kind of one final note on the Hojoko thing. Like I said, when you go down in the morning, that continental breakfast is included with your stay at the hotel. So we went down for breakfast, uh, grabbed some cold brew coffee. You know, and it was the breakfast was what it was. It was standard continental breakfast, you know, that hard boiled eggs, uh, you know, waffles made to order, pancakes, yogurt, uh, slushies made to order, oatmeal, you know, hot coffee, hot tea, juice, um, nothing too outrageous, but it was included in in with the hotel. And again, you could sit and watch the pool and. And again, they're playing rock music the whole way through breakfast. So just, a, you know, sort of an added bonus to staying at the Verb. Um, and yeah, just another chance to kind of hang out in Hojoko. All right. I'm going to take one last break. Uh, refill my glasses, refill my water. It's always important to keep hydrated while you're drinking. And when I come back, I'm going to talk about the day I spent, you know, once we left the hotel, going down to the common, going to see Hamilton. Uh, and I am going to drink the whiskey that I had to track down the day I got back from Boston. So 
Go refill your glass, get a drink of water, and uh, I'll be back in a minute. All right, I am back again. This is season three, episode six, talking about 24 hours I spent in Boston. And uh, again, this was just, it was an adventure that touched upon almost everything that I am passionate about, uh, whether it was music, uh, spirits, great food, art, culture, uh, learning things from other people to make you aware of stuff. Uh, yeah, just so much that went into this, uh, you know, I, I call it a weekend, but it was really just 24 hours. There we go. You had a little pour going there. Uh, and you know, all the spirits that we're tasting this week are, are kind of inspired by that amazing dinner that I had at Hojoko, which is a fantastic Japanese restaurant with a fantastic Japanese whiskey menu. And the next next whiskey that I have uh, opened, there, wow, just kind of stumbled on my words there. Uh, the next whiskey that I am getting into uh, is the Nika from the Barrel. Now, I have kind of already mentioned how murky at times Japanese whiskey could be because not all the whiskey had to come from Japan. Uh, but this is a whiskey that proves, you know, like if the whiskey's good, then the whiskey is good. This was a Whiskey Advocate Whiskey of the Year, the top whiskey of the year. I think 2019 or 2020. I know you'd think I'd have that info available to me. Uh, so here's the specs on Nika from the barrel. Uh, again, it's not all Japanese whiskey. Uh, there is some that is imported from Scotland, I do believe. Um it's blended from a hundred batches of whiskey, of malt whiskey and grain whiskey. Uh, so that could be corn whiskey, wheat whiskey. Uh, in Japan, it could be rice whiskey. They use some other grains that we don't traditionally think of as whiskey grains here. Uh, but again, whiskey just has to be from cereal grains. And malt whiskey, so 100% malted barley. A hundred different batches. They then get blended together. And then re-barreled into used barrels for a little bit further aging to let the marriage of all these batches kind of, you know, settle into each other. Uh, bottled at 102.8, which is, you know, 51.4% alcohol. And it is done that way to be the equivalent of British 90 proof. Now, I don't know entirely what that means, that 90 proof in Britain uh, is different than 90 proof in America. Um, but apparently, if it's 90 proof in Britain, it's 102 proof to the rest of us. I don't know how that works exactly, if that's some sort of metric system thing or, or whatever. In, in the end, who cares? It doesn't really matter. Now, the bottle design on this, it looks like a block. It's like a short, not you know, kind of squared off and flat top. It's like a, a tall, right? It almost looks like a brick. And it's that way on purpose because it's it's designed to resemble a block, like a block of whiskeys uh, that all come together. 
you know, very minimalist label. Again, just just sort of clear glass bottle, no neck to it. It's pretty much flat on the top, except for where the screw cap screws on. Yeah, no cork on this one. Uh, a little bit of Japanese writing along the front, and that is about it. Um, on the back, uh, Nico Whiskey Distilling Company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this whiskey here, a uh, couple of things about it. One, uh, you know... I mentioned earlier about how, you know, Japanese sort of regulations were a little bit murky. And then last year, they finally put some federal guidelines into place as to what constitutes a Japanese whiskey. And to be perfectly honest, like nowhere on the label does this actually say that it's Japanese whiskey. Um, it just happens to be whiskey that's bottled in Japan. But when you go to the Nika website or the Suntory website, Bottlings like this that don't meet the new sort of Japanese whiskey guidelines, they're pretty transparent about it. So you can look up all the specs on this on the Nika website, and right down at the bottom, it says in full disclosure, this whiskey is not compliant with the new federal Japanese whiskey guidelines. So they're not trying to hide anything from you. This rings at about, I want to say it was about 90 bucks. Uh, on the shelf, uh, I've been out of stock for for a little bit at my store. Um, but this, you know, unlike Yamazaki 12 or some of the more highly sought after Japanese whiskeys, this you can find, you know, not on a constant basis, but kind of on the same basis as like a, a Booker's. It's there, you know, it goes out of stock and then you get a little bit more in later on in the year. So it's not a total unicorn Um Again, not always available, but you see it often enough that, uh, you know, I would highly recommend if you do, definitely grabbing a bottle. So, yeah, on the nose. Oh, man, like toffee, orchard fruit, a little bit of smoke. All right, here we go. I mean, you can tell that 100 batches of whiskey went into this bottling. There is so much going on there. There's a little bit of smoke. There's a little bit of honey sweetness. There's a little bit of kind of toffee flavors. There's a little bit of cocoa flavors. Some coffee, stone fruit, like apricot, peach. There is a lot going on here. And I don't care, British 90 proof, uh, American 100 proof. Either way, this drinks really, really easy. It's stylish. It's elegant. It's just a beautiful whiskey. Uh, was it whiskey of the year? I, I don't know. I don't remember tasting uh, the other whiskeys that were up that year. But certainly a fantastic bottle. Um, you know, and that three-tiered rating system, is it good? Yes. Is it worth the money? Absolutely. I think at 90 bucks, this is worth every single penny. Uh, does the bottle start a conversation? Yeah. If you've never seen this before, you're going to wonder what this is. Again, very, very sort of minimalist uh, bottling. All right. So back to my weekend in, in Boston, which, again, was only sort of 24 hours. You know, we had a great night, had great dinner, went back to the room, uh, you know, listened to some Buddy Guy and some BB King on vinyl. 
sipped on some spirits, kind of relaxed, woke up in the morning. I told you guys the story about realizing the, the windows were tinted. We went down, had some breakfast. You know, and the breakfast at the hotel is great. It's included. But, you know, me being diabetic, having a, a breakfast that consists of pancakes and waffles and smoothies, not the healthiest thing for me. Uh, so we did. We had a little bit, you know, I had some yogurt and a hard boiled egg and we had some coffee. But I had a craving for for eggs and something with a little bit more substance uh, and a little less carbs. So we walked down the street from the hotel, found this little sort of breakfast cafe called Tate, T-A-T-T-E, where it's the first place I've ever seen Shetshuka on the menu. So again, this sort of cultural food experience and Shetshuka Uh, It's a Middle Eastern dish. I forget the country escapes me where it kind of originates from, but it's basically like a, it's a dish that's got like tomato sauce and you poach eggs in this tomato sauce and there's like mushrooms and onions and it's flavored with cumin and other Middle Eastern spices. Absolutely fantastic. I think I put the picture up on Instagram. It was actually served in like a, like a frying pan kind of vessel. Uh, so, you know, again, sort of this cultural journey of, you know, me thinking like we're going to Boston to go see Hamilton and then it becomes, oh, there's great music and oh, there's great Japanese whiskey and oh my God, there's some amazing food. And then the next day we're having, you know, Middle Eastern style breakfast And my breakfast, by the way, was just sort of, it was okay. You know, scrambled eggs, a little prosciutto and some Parmesan uh, cheese on there. Nothing really special. Uh, but I did get to try Shachuka for the first time in my life, and it was absolutely delicious. So from where we were at, you know, we were parked in a garage. We decided we just checked out of the hotel, obviously grabbed some more cold brew coffee out of the lobby. It's, you know, you don't always get to rave about the quality of the coffee at the hotel, but man, this coffee was something else. It was absolutely fantastic. I had the hot version and the cold version, uh, and they were both delicious. I don't know what coffee they use, but the coffee was great. And maybe it's just me being a prisoner of the moment that everything was great, but yeah, that, that coffee was pretty great. So, you know, we decided we're just going to Uber from the hotel over to the theater, even though we were checked out, we were still in the parking garage. It just seemed easier than me trying to drive into the theater district, which I hate driving into Boston enough as it is trying to drive from one location to another in Boston, probably just too much for me. So, you know, we grabbed an Uber and you know what, guys, if you ever want to go on an adventure, drive into Boston somewhere and get an Uber ride into the theater district around the Boston common. Uh, If you think Uber drivers are a little crazy around here, man, that was a white knuckle ride of you know ten minutes of my life that I think I aged another six months of you know an Uber driver who doesn't speak who's on his phone speaking to somebody else in a language I don't understand just cutting people off in traffic and and merging and and switching lanes and yeah it was like something out of a movie and then you know you just come to a complete stop and he's like oh is it all right if I just leave you here and I was like yeah I'll I'll just walk the rest of the way from here. And so, you know, we had a, a couple hours to kill and and I kind of had the thought of, oh, we'll go take a walk over to the common. Now, 
I'm going to time hop here a little bit and go back a few weeks. And I was talking to my boss and he was talking about how it was the day they were unveiling the Martin Luther King sculpture on the Boston Common. And admittedly, like I don't get up and turn on the news. Um, I didn't honestly know that they were even making a sculpture to honor Martin Luther King. It just wasn't something that was on my radar. I hadn't heard about it. Didn't pop up on my Facebook feed. Um, And so I just didn't know it was there. But my boss was telling me about it and he was describing what the the sculpture looked like, uh, the reasoning behind it. It's based on a photo of Martin Luther King and his wife at Boston University and they were hugging. And, and so, you know, he's describing the sculpture as the sculpture is just a depiction of their embrace. Uh, and we talked a little bit about, you know, how some people were up in arms because it wasn't actually a sculpture of Martin Luther King. It's just these kind of arms hugging each other. Um, sort of, you know, well, I didn't know what to think. Uh, so, you know, we kind of walking around down Boston and, you know, I look over and I see this sculpture and it, it dawns on me of like, whoa there it is. Uh, you know, and, and so we took a walk over to that sculpture, uh, to kind of check it out. You know, there's a little crowd there and I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, I don't know if it's, you know, the, the crowd that was there, you know, nothing bad about the whole experience. I just found personally, I, I, I thought I would be a little bit more moved by it. It's an amazing, impressive sculpture, of again, sort of, you know, if you could picture your hands around your person's back and their hands around your back, and it's just sort of the depiction of the hands around each other, the detail on the fingers and the ring and the fingernails, and you know, the sort of little wrinkles of your hands, like they were all fantastic. But at the same time, it's also a very sort of abstract sculpture and yeah i mean there's a plaque there that kind of describes what it is but if you were just walking through the park and you didn't get up close enough i would have thought like wow that's a really cool sculpture it just didn't it didn't move me in my soul the way i thought it would and i think it's just because it's so abstract it's a great sort of depiction of love and holding each other um but it wasn't it just didn't I, I it's something I'm glad that I saw. And again, it's it's culture, it's art, it's it's history kind of all wrapped up into one. And I'm glad I was there and I get to sit and, and sort of reflect. Um, but it didn't sort of have the aura and the presence that I thought maybe it would um, for I guess maybe for all the sort of hubbub about it uh, that I had heard. So. But either way, you know, it's just another sort of thing that enhances it. Like I saw it and now I can go back and talk to other people about it um, and and talking about tangible things. And that's, again, what connects us. And, you know, you might disagree with me and maybe you've already gone down there and seen it and gone like I was incredibly moved. What's great is we can now have a discussion because we were both there and maybe we both saw it from different perspectives or different timing. Uh, But you know, that's again, the joy of what I want to do with this podcast is to stimulate discussions. Um, so yeah, it, it was pretty cool. Then we had a little bit of time to kill. So we found this 
uh, Middle Eastern shawarma restaurant, had some amazing shawarma. Uh, and, you know, one of the great signs when you walk into any sort of like ethnic restaurant, whether it's a Middle Eastern restaurant, whether it's a Japanese restaurant, uh, whether it's a Thai restaurant, when you see people of that ethnicity eating there, you know the food is good. If you go to a Japanese restaurant and there's a lot of Japanese people there eating the food, you know it's authentic. When you go into a Middle Eastern restaurant and there's a bunch of Middle Eastern people there eating the shawarma, you know that it tastes like the motherland. You're getting close to the real deal. Um, and that's what we had. Nothing nothing crazy, just a, a little shawarma platter. Um, and then from there, we headed over to to go see Hamilton. All right. I'm going to... Ah, that sweet sound of a cork pop. And I saved the best whiskey for last. Why is it the best whiskey? Because it's the one I actually drank at the restaurant. Well, it's the one that I drank at the restaurant that I could find uh, immediately. I'm sure if I search around, I can find the other one. I posted this up on Instagram a while back. This is the Ryujin Japanese whiskey aged in Mizunura casks. It's a little kitschy. It's got the big dragon wrapped around the bottle. Um, but I absolutely love it. I had to find it uh, as soon as I got back. Oh, man. So great package. Uh, this was the first whiskey that I tried when we got there. I tried this in a, a whiskey called Takamine, um, which the Takamine, I should note, is is made in a unique sort of Japanese style where they do, it's called a koji whiskey. So this koji um, is also added with the yeast into the mash. Uh, and the koji is kind of like a mold. So the mold and the yeast uh, is kind of what helps to create the alcohol. It's 100% malted barley uh, aged in a blend of virgin oak barrels and bourbon barrels. Uh, and it's an eight-year-old whiskey. So if you see the Takamine out there, I also had that at the restaurant. Absolutely fantastic. But right now, I am drinking the Ryujin. Uh, and the dragon is the deity of the sea. Now, on their website, there's not a ton of info about the mash bill or what goes into it or where it comes from. The one thing I did get, though, is it's aged for 12 months in Mizanara. There's no other info, so I don't know if it's aged in something else first, but it might just be 12 months in Mizanara Oak. And on the nose, it's a deeper, darker flavor than any of the other whiskeys I've had, at least on this podcast. Like honey, butterscotch on the nose. Now, if by some chance, oh man, it's like honey, ginger, pears. Yes, yeah, like like baking spice, like cinnamon and nutmeg. Nice sweet finish. That is delicious. So, so yeah, we walked over, 
we get to see Hamilton. Hamilton was fantastic. You know, people have asked, like, oh, it's not the original Broadway crew. It was the show was fantastic. Uh, like I said, I've seen sort of the original broadcast on Disney Plus, and I'm not, you know, a musical theater expert, but I've had a lot of people go, like, would I enjoy it? As somebody who doesn't go to the theater, like, would I enjoy it? Absolutely. I think. I think the show is awesome. The The content is great. It's obviously, a, a, you know, a show about Alexander Hamilton and his life and his contributions to America and the Constitution and our fight for liberty from Britain and, you know, just done to musical. And there's a lot of really funny parts. There's a lot of really serious emotional parts. There's a lot of really deep parts. What fascinated me, though, was the amount of people who brought their children to this show. Um, I don't think it's a kid's show. It's a great sort of viewing of history. Yes, but it's a very honest show. And some of the language is not always, uh, child appropriate, uh, including a, a reference to cucking somebody's wife. If you don't know what that means, look it up. Um, so there's some pretty adult, uh, themes in the show that, to me just aren't really appropriate for, for kids. Um, and, and, and to show that it's not really a, a kid thing, uh, in the end, no spoilers here, by the way, uh, Alexander, Alexander Hamilton gets shot by Aaron Burr. Uh, if you didn't know that, sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, but I, I heard a kid behind me ask his dad if Hamilton survives. And I thought like, Oh, Maybe you should wait until the kids are old enough to have covered that section of their history books uh, before bringing them to Hamilton. Um, and then when we get out, uh, you know, the theater's on like a, this one lane, one way street. And there's just throngs of people and the traffic is backed up in both ways. And we called an Uber driver and, you know, we got in in the Uber. Actually, I think it was a Lyft and, uh, you know, this classical music playing. And I'm thinking like, oh. This is this is cool. All right. This is calming. Oh, no, this guy was zigging and zagging and cutting people off. And but without seeming stressed at all, it was like it was like being driven around by a, a serial killer that, you know, by the time we got back to to my car at the hotel, I was I was like, all right, Boston has been a complete adventure. I am ready to to go home. Uh, and we packed up and we headed back home. So all in all, again, you know, you know different food cultures, music, uh, spirits, art. Uh, yeah, just the whole gamut you know, getting to walk through the common of downtown. Just so much crammed into 24 hours in Boston. And again, like I, I don't tell this story to be braggadocious and you know, I'm not getting anything out of it. I'm not, you know, there's no endorsements from anybody other than just me kind of letting people know, like some of this stuff was out there and I didn't know it was there. And then when I kind of got to experience it, I thought this is great. And if these are the kind of things that you're into art and food and drinks and music, there's so much of it down there. Uh, and I get to experience it all within 24 hours and whatever it is, go on your own adventures, have some of these life experiences, because I feel like 
man, life in the world just seems to get more and more bonkers that, you know, if we don't take the time to kind of get away and disconnect every now and then, uh, the world may ultimately get to us. And sort of, you know, going back to the, the Ryajin whiskey, you know, the three-tiered rating system, of is it good? Yeah, it's really, really good. Is it worth the money? Here's where it all comes together for me. I paid a hundred bucks for it. You know, I got back. I had to do a little search, figure out who sold it, find a store that carried it. I went right there. I didn't even flinch at dropping a hundred bucks before I knew, or at least now think that it might be just a year old whiskey, you know, and it's kitschy and it's got a dragon on it and the dragon moves and it's, it's really cool. Is it worth a hundred bucks? It is to me because it was a whiskey that I had on this adventure. It was a whiskey that I had with somebody who means the world to me. It's, you know, every time I take a sip of this whiskey, I'm reminded of those moments in time. And, you know, I had this question posed to me, you know, a while ago, a couple of years ago, when somebody said like, hey, is this bottle of wine worth, you know, $200? And my honest response is, on the surface, no, but you're not paying for the bottle. You're not paying for the liquid inside. What you're paying for is the memories and the moments you create that are centered around that bottle. So when I come back to this and I go like, is this bottle worth $100? 100% it's worth more than that to me because of the memories and the moments that are attached to the spirit that's inside the bottle. You know, the liquid could be 20 bucks, could be a hundred bucks. It would all be the same. But the fact that it's this bottle with this dragon and it puts me back in that space. Yeah, it's worth every single penny. And does the bottle start a conversation? <laughs> Without a doubt. Uh, scroll back on my Instagram page, uh, the spirits guide, and you'll see the, the kitschy little dragon there. Uh, it is a conversation starter for sure. And yeah, you know, the whole adventure costs money, but it, it's all sort of relative. You know, we paid for it in stages over time and, and whatever and made a whole sort of thing out of it. But the money is not even a thought when it comes to what you get to experience and, you know, the memories and the moments uh, and the joy that it brought. Uh, and not for, not for, these were real sort of tangible things, you know, to the, the money I spent to be able to put a, a record on a record player or the money we spent to have food that we were actually eating or, you know, drinks that we were actually consuming and kind of living in a moment. Uh, you know, the money you spent on tickets to see other people do something that they're passionate about so that they can make a living pursuing their passions. Every penny of it is worth it and irrelevant to the bottom line, which was, you know, life is about creating moments and memories because in the end, that's all we really have is, is moments and memories. You know, possessions can be lost. But memories, memories are all we've got. They're all we truly own. So, yeah, there it is. 24 hours in Boston, my my weekend getaway. Um, maybe this is self-indulgent. Maybe it's just me rambling. Uh, I don't know. But if you're still listening, 
then you kind of enjoy it. And I appreciate that. And if you are still listening but haven't done so yet, you guys know the deal. Go to the podcast page, click that follow button, give it a five-star rating, share it out on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Instagram as The Spirits Guide, where I'm posting pictures of all these things that I'm, I'm doing and tasting and listening to and reading and all the things that are spiritual to me. You can also leave comments and reviews about the podcast on both of those platforms. And for everything else, you can reach me at thespiritsguide89 at gmail.com. All right, guys, have a great week. We'll be back on Thursday doing a little TNT Thursday night tastings to get you ready for the weekend. Thank you, as always, for being here. Talk to you guys soon. Cheers. Yay!